welcome to Writing in Faith, a podcast about the Christian and writing life. I'm your host, Daniel Didek, and as I was editing the Freedom with Words episode a couple weeks ago, and I was working on the part about the kingdom of God not being about eating and drinking, a whole ton of thoughts came to me on that topic. So instead of what I had originally planned, we're going to take a look at that today. For the writing portion, we're going to be talking a little bit about author brand and making intentional decisions about who it is you want to be and what people think when they see or hear your name. It's not as scary as it might sound, so let's get started. Been a little bit of a weird week again this week. Certain things moving and changing and things coming up. We had a wedding on Saturday, which we'll actually talk a little bit about further on in the episode. So a couple days there, my wife was in the wedding uh, she was one of the bridesmaids, so there was a lot of things that she had to kind of do to help out with that. So I was home with our kid watching him. There's a lot of time taken up with that, but I am moving forward with book three and book four. Book three, I've started doing some revisions to it and looking to get that out in May, like I said. And then also book four, I'm going to start drafting that on Monday, actually. I just printed off the map today, the day that I recorded this. Just got to fill that in. Already got the names of everything and kind of an idea of where things are supposed to go. So just got to fill that out so that when I start drafting, as I mentioned in earlier updates, just going to do kind of a rough draft of the map just so I have an idea of where things are so I can start writing. And then I'll probably start with a little bit lower word count at first, maybe just 500 words a day since it's brand new. When I was doing a thousand words a day last year on book three, I really, I had every step of the plot laid out from the point where I started doing that until the end. So I kind of, I was able to really sit down and I knew where the story needed to go. So it was a lot easier to do that amount of writing in one stretch. So for now, I'll just kind of set 500 words a day to get rolling here until I really see where it's starting to head and things like that. So getting excited about that. Moving forward, the website's up. It's, uh, I think it looks pretty nice. If you haven't checked it out yet, go check it out. It's just danieldidek.com. You can get my books there. You can listen to this podcast there and things like that. So, as I said, not too much going on this past week. So we'll just jump right in to today's topic. As I said in the introduction, we're going to be talking about the kingdom of heaven. And for this talk today, because I haven't had a heaven is for real kind of experience, and I haven't had an experience like the Apostle Paul, in order to talk about it, we're just going to look at a ton of verses that deal with the subject, and just to make a few comments as we go. And even if I had those sorts of experiences, I might still want to use scripture because that's something we can all look at and agree on. And you don't have to take my word for it, you know, that I'm not making up some of this stuff. So to kind of wrap our heads around the idea of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, we're going to be looking at what it is, but then also what it is not. And really kind of the the main thrust of today's message is dealing with what it is not, because I think understanding what it isn't has wide-ranging effects on how we live our lives, how we think about things, how we study scripture and all that sort of stuff. So before we get to that, though, let's go back and take a look again at the verse we had looked at a couple weeks ago. Paul was writing to the Romans, and this was in chapter 14 of the book of Romans, verse 17. And at this point, he's talking about his freedom in Christ and being able to eat meat sacrificed to idols, but that he would not do so if it caused a brother or sister to be tempted into sin. And he reminds us in verse 17 that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So right off the bat, Paul gives us two examples of what the kingdom is and isn't, right? The kingdom is not, he says, it is not about eating and drinking. It is about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
So obviously we want to ask, what is this righteousness, peace, and joy, and how do we get it? And remember I've said earlier that understanding can come first now that we have the Holy Spirit. So what is it that we need to understand about this? I'll give you the answer early. We have to understand, first of all, that the kingdom is not yet a physical thing. It has ramifications in the physical world, certainly. There are effects that we can observe in the physical world and in ourselves from the breaking through of the kingdom of God here on earth. But at least for now, and until the end of the book of Revelation, the kingdom of God has not fully come upon earth. This understanding is hugely important, and I don't think I can overstate this, which is why we're going to be spending the rest of our time going over and over this idea. So first on our tour of all these scriptures we're going to look at, let's check out Matthew chapter 6. So this is during the Sermon on the Mount that we've touched on briefly before when we were looking at Matthew chapter 5. But in this chapter, in chapter 6, Jesus assures his followers that God will provide everything we need. He reminds us that birds are fed and flowers are clothed in splendor that outmatches even Solomon in all his glory. And in case we forgot, he also reminds us that we are far more valuable than birds and flowers. So why are we worried about food and clothing? God will take care of us. But did you know he still asks us to do something? Verse 33. But seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Seek it first, he says. Make it uppermost in your mind. In everything you do, everything you read or study, seek the kingdom of God first. When Jesus teaches his followers to pray earlier in the chapter, look what he says. Our Father in heaven, may your name be hallowed, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. The first thing we visit in our prayer is God, and we ask that what happens on earth is a mirror of what happens in heaven. Only after this do we pray, give us this day our daily bread. When Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness before Jesus starts his physical ministry here on earth, Satan says, if you're hungry, turn these stones to bread and eat. But Jesus already knew what Paul would tell us later, and he responds, man does not live on bread alone, but on the word of God. This is why we need to fast from food. I was at a wedding recently, as I mentioned. My wife was a bridesmaid in a wedding here in town. And I observed something that I have observed at nearly every wedding. It was not particular just to this one. If you've ever been to a wedding, this probably happens to you too. All the guests are in the banquet hall waiting for the bride and groom to arrive. At this wedding, there is a cookie table and a couple trays of cheese and crackers. And usually there's some sort of hors d'oeuvres or appetizers or whatever to keep people satisfied during this interminable waiting period. But of course, the longer the delay, the more people begin to grumble. They were hungry. This is ridiculous. How long could this take? Doesn't the couple realize we're hungry and waiting for them? Now, this wedding started at 4 p.m., and it was then approaching 6.30. Unless something extremely radical had happened, which is possible, most or all of these people had eaten lunch around noon, just over six hours ago. Maybe they had only had breakfast, so it might have been 12 hours ago. But did you know the human body can live over 45 days without food? Not without water, you need to be hydrated. But the symptoms of starvation don't begin until around day 35 or 40. Yet here was a whole group of people whose joy at the wedding was beginning to be sucked away because they had not eaten in one quarter of a day. They were 1% of the way to the symptoms of starvation, 1% of the way to where Jesus was when Satan tempted him with bread and they were losing sight of the kingdom of God. Part of why we fast is to help us understand what Paul said. The kingdom is not about eating and drinking. It's popular these days to teach that a fast can be anything. You can fast social media, TV, games, or whatnot, but understand that this is nowhere in the Bible. Maybe your attachment to the world is so secure that fasting something like this is where you need to start, and that's fine. But realize that such a fast is only taking you back to a pre-technology era. It is not yet addressing our basic attachment to our body, our physical self. When Jesus talked about fasting, he meant from food. He meant fasting from something that most of us would consider basic and what the world would say is something we shouldn't go without unless circumstances force us to. 
We as Christians are supposed to be taught differently, that we should not be slaves to our stomach. Our attitude and disposition should not be dictated by whether we have eaten within the last four or five hours. By fasting, we put our body in its rightful place and bring our attention to the fact that the part of us that will live forever is our spirit and soul. This thing we are forced to be cloaked in for the time being is perishing from the day it's born. Some of us, maybe many of us, can go days or weeks without fellowship, prayer, or reading our Bible. And yet we can't even go part of a day without putting something in our stomach. That if a meal is late, we start to get hangry. If that's how our lives look, we misunderstand the kingdom and misunderstand how to live in it. I hope I don't sound too harsh because Jesus sounded even harsher. In the book of Mark, chapter 8, verse 31 through 33, this story is told. He, meaning Jesus, then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, we should understand that Jesus wasn't literally calling Peter Satan. But Peter's attitude and the temptation that he was offering Jesus by suggesting that he would not suffer these things was entirely Satan. We need to be extremely careful, then, what we say to one another. It may seem like a good thing to bless someone, to say to them that good things are coming their way, that they are favored by God, and God has rich blessings coming to them. And in his way, he does, and he will. But we must remember that the kingdom is not about eating and drinking. It is not about physical comfort and ease. Look what Jesus tells us in John 15, verse 2. He, meaning God, cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. An interesting note in the text is that the Greek word translated he prunes is also the word for he cleans, which is interesting given that in verse 3 Jesus continues, You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. These words are similar in the Greek, but are not the same, which is probably why they were translated differently for us. There is, in the sense of clean, the idea of a vine that has been pruned, so Jesus is definitely having a little bit of fun with words here, which is hugely encouraging for me as a writer. But back to our text, even as we begin to bear fruit, which should be seen as spiritual victories for the kingdom of God, not necessarily what we might consider success here on earth, God will continue to prune us, to clean us of filth, impurity, and wrong desires. In essence, to make us more obedient to his perfect will for our lives. And guess how we learn obedience? Hebrews 5 verse 8, talking about Jesus. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Paul also says it this way in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 27. I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave. Now, I want to take an opportunity here to pause a moment and remind us all that our God is a generous and abundant God. When Jesus fed the 5,000, there were 12 basketfuls of food left over. After everyone had eaten their fill, Jesus had handed out so much that each of the disciples got their own portion left over. But we have to keep in mind one of our earlier verses. Seek first his kingdom. If we come to God only out of the hope that he will provide for our physical needs, we are not truly seeking his kingdom first. Now he may, in his benevolence, give that physical comfort to someone who seeks it, just as Jesus fed the crowds first and gave them physical comfort, then the following day warned them that if they did not eat his flesh and drink his blood, they would not have eternal life, talking about spiritual comfort. But as Jesus also says in Matthew 5 verse 45, God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. This actually tells us two things. First, God may choose to bless you before he demands your obedience. And perhaps more importantly, just because you have sun and nourishing rain does not mean you are good and just. 
Weeds are given sun and rain, but are pulled up and burned. Only plants that bear fruit are given life. This idea that worldly success and providence are signs of God's favor are the result of earthly mindsets. It began with the belief that we can't be sure of our salvation absent any sort of outward sign. But look at the signs Jesus gives of those who follow him. Miracles, according to Mark chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. Persecution, from John chapter 15, verse 20. And love for one another, from John chapter 13, verse 35. These are all signs of the kingdom of heaven breaking into the physical world. Love and miracles, because God is love, and miracles subvert the natural order and point to the one with the authority to subvert that order because he created it, and persecution is the result of Satan losing his domain and not being very happy about it. We're probably running out of time, so let's look at two more passages and move on. First, let's go to Romans chapter 8, verses 5 and 6. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The spirit desires spiritual fruit, a widening and deepening of the kingdom of God. Widening meaning more people coming to Christ, and deepening meaning the development of holiness in those in Christ. As we've talked about earlier, that those who come to Christ are pruned to bear even more fruit. Imagine festooning the Titanic with gold and artwork and feasts as it's sinking. Imagine that scene. Imagine there are lifeboats aplenty. After all, God desires all to come to a saving knowledge of Christ, and Christ's blood is sufficient to cover all sins of all people and present them redeemed before God. So there's no shortage of space to keep passengers from freezing in the Atlantic. But as people are rushing to get to those boats, we step in and say, hey, help me attach these amazing statues to the deck, will you? I think this boat should be blessed with a lot more beautiful things. Clearly a mind governed by material things rather than life. Such a person would be considered insane, not the one who wanted to save as many as possible and abandoned all material things and all the possessions they had brought on board in order to get themselves and as many people as they could into the lifeboats and save their lives. Our final verse today is going to be our practical application, and it comes from Mark chapter 4. Jesus has finished some teaching, and he and his disciples get into a boat to cross to the other side. Verses 37 and 38 say, A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? I've heard so many teachings talking about Jesus calming the storm in our lives, based on this passage. One was a very erudite, in-depth, word-by-word in the Greek study of how Jesus calmed the storm, and, since Jesus gave us authority, we can do the same and calm the storms in our lives. Here's the problem I have. Those studies seek our physical comfort first. If we want to seek the kingdom, here's a great start. Look to Christ. Because what did the disciples ask? Teacher, don't you care if we drown? How silly is this question? By this point, do we really think Jesus intended to take them out onto the lake and let them drown? What should they have done instead? What should we do when we find ourselves in a life storm? Look to Jesus. Is he sleeping? Does he seem unperturbed? Is it possible that there's actually nothing to worry about? Are we only worried about our physical comfort and not about a life of righteousness, peace, and joy? Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. When you look to stand on the promises of God, stand on the ones that result in spiritual growth more than the ones that seem to promise a life of ease and riches. It's a matter of focus and a matter of aligning our lives with a greater truth. When we do that, we will look different than the general masses. We talked last week about people with character being predictable, remember? 
Not necessarily in a bad way, but someone of strong moral character isn't duplicitous or hypocritical, and it's someone we generally admire, right? Unless the thing that they adhere to isn't admirable. This is the idea behind author brand. An author brand is that thing that defines an author beyond the fact that they write. Stephen King writes, as does Nora Roberts. But just by saying those names, completely different ideas came to your mind, didn't they? Part of your brand is going to come naturally from the genre you write in. Brandon Sanderson is known in many circles as the epic fantasy guy, even though he has a hugely successful YA career as well. But he earned that brand in part by finishing Robert Jordan's massively epic Wheel of Time series, but mostly by the fact that he wrote Way of Kings, a 400,000-word tome. For comparison, epic fantasy is typically 100,000 to 200,000 words. So once he was famous enough to write the book he truly wanted to write, his ideal of an epic fantasy was two to four times the normal length. Nora Roberts' brand is romance, Stephen King's is horror, and McCaffrey's is a lot of times fantasy, even though she billed her Dragon Riders of Pern series as sci-fi, and technically it is. But beyond genre, your brand, too, is part of your general public persona, which does not have to be an exact replica of your personal life. This is important and maybe not understood. This doesn't mean you have to be two different people, or even that you have to have opposite beliefs. Actually, you don't want to do this, because it will be nearly impossible to maintain well. Rather, your author brand should be specific selections of your personal life and beliefs. This is, in part, what I've personally struggled with. There are three things that I have pretty equal passions about. Life in Christ, which includes my family, writing fantasy, and the outdoors, especially mountain biking. What has been a massive struggle for me is finding a brand that incorporates all three. To date, I have not found it. I have ideas around Christ in writing and ideas around Christ in mountain biking. But in my experience, anyway, adding mountain biking to writing fantasy or adding writing fantasy to mountain biking just becomes too exclusionary. That particular Venn diagram would limit my audience to probably me and my wife, maybe a couple of others. Even then, I'm not sure I myself would like it too much. That would be a lot of work to try to create content on all those fronts. I sort of did it for a while. My Instagram account is more about fitness and mountain biking because those things lend themselves to pictures a lot more easily than writing fantasy, at least for me. If I could draw or spent more time on creating writing aesthetics, then maybe. I do have, stored away on my hard drive, a massive plan for a bunch of mountain biking devotionals, probably even a year-long book eventually. And a lot of things in my life that I've already done have given me the experience to pull this off. But for right now, trying to build that into my existing brand of faith and fantasy is too awkward a fit. So I've had to make the conscious decision to just focus on Christ and writing fantasy for now. And we'll see where it leads me. Maybe one day I'll be able to do the other. And this is the point. When creating your brand, and I really, really hate to say this, but you've got to define your audience. I'm sorry, but it's true. You know, there's a joke in the ministry I heard many years ago that pastors have one sermon and 52 different ways to preach it. If you haven't realized it yet, my sermon about writing is define your audience. But once you've done that, sort through your personality and passions and think critically about which parts of those will make you more human and relatable to your readers, as well as selling your books. Readers want writers they can relate to, to some degree. We all have our little quirks, the little things that make us happy or excited, and it may have nothing to do with writing per se. Just make sure that whatever it is, it's something that will appeal to that audience. A lot of people who look for mountain biking or who look for fantasy can also look for Christian themes, which is why each of those works separately, even though they do not necessarily inherently relate to one another. Then take the time to build that brand. The idea is simple. Just like we did with Stephen King and Nora Roberts, the idea of brand is that when someone says your name, 
more than just your name or the titles of your books will come to mind. Although if they automatically think of some titles of your books, that's a good thing too. How you'll serve yourself best is to try to think of what it is you want people to think of and take intentional steps toward building that image. If you leave it up to fate, you may not like what you end up with, and it may end up hurting your books rather than helping them. Take, for example, Nora Roberts. Her brand, as we've said, is romance. Some years ago, she started writing mystery novels as well. Because her Nora Roberts brand was so strong, her publisher knew people would pick up these mystery books and be surprised that they were not romance. There was a risk there of her brand as romance author hurting the sales of her mystery novels. So she writes those under the pen name J.D. Robb. This is actually very common. Another author published a book that tanked. His publisher restarted his career under a pen name so people wouldn't associate his new and better stuff with that older flop. So, might you one day see some mountain biking devotionals being published under some name you've never heard of? Maybe. Might be the way I need to go with it. We'll see. But when I do, I once again make intentional decisions about who my audience is supposed to be and how to relate those passions and joys to them. I hope this has once again been helpful. Remember, you can find me on social media and my website. And feel free to start a conversation about this topic. Let me know your questions. I'd love to chat. Join me again next week as we take a look at living our best life and writing your best book, Now, I'm excited to dive into my own take on this idea too. Until then, keep the faith and keep writing.